and that's why I don't think the BOJ will be doing anything big uh, in the days or weeks ahead. Is the Japanese labor market seeing the same sort of trends that we're seeing in the U.S., where swathes of workers are just resigning from from their jobs, giving up all, altogether and exiting the labor uh, market to the extent that over in the U.S. there just aren't enough people to fill the job openings? Are you seeing a similar trend at all in Japan? Well, I mean, Japan certainly has seen a bit of a, a, a so-called great resignation here, but not to the same extent you've seen in the U.S. I mean, Japan's bigger problem is the uh, rapidly aging population. The U.S. doesn't have the same problem because the U.S. is still importing labor. Japan is not doing that so much. So a lot of companies have had to recalibrate and figure out ways to staff. So, you know, they've a lot of Japanese companies are asking retirees to come back. Mm. A lot of Japanese companies are ask, asking housewives to come into the labor force, mm. that sort of thing. So Japan's been grappling with this for some time. But, yes, Japan is suffering from some of these, these COVID resignations, but not to the same extent you've seen in the U.S. William, thank you very much indeed. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author thank William you, Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this morning in Australia. Shares ticking up a bit now there, up uh, about a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up 0.4%. The Cosby in South Korea down about 0.2%. Futures markets pointing to a flat open uh, for the Hang Seng this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Ada Wong on Radio 3. The weather forecast uh, for today, mainly cloudy, one or two rain patches in the morning. And it's going to be cool. Temperatures lingering around 17 degrees during the day. And the outlook is for it to remain cool tomorrow morning, windy on Thursday and Friday. And the temperature right now is 17 degrees. It's 88% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Police have arrested and charged two former Cathay Pacific flight attendants for violating Hong Kong's COVID-19 rules. The SAR's Omicron variant outbreak can be traced back to the two who breached a required three-day home isolation order and instead visited several parts of the city at the end of last year. Aaron Tam reports. In a statement, police said that their investigations revealed that the two ex-flight attendants arrived in Hong Kong from the United States on the 24th and 25th of December last year. Without naming the airline they used to work for, the force said that during their medical surveillance periods, they conducted unnecessary activities in contravention to the prevention and control of disease regulation on December 25th and 27th. They subsequently tested positive for the highly infectious Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Earlier this month, Cathay Pacific announced that it fired two air crew members who are suspected of breaching COVID protocols. The airline had described the actions of individuals who broke medical surveillance regulations as extremely disappointing. The pair has been released on bail and their cases will be heard at Tunmun Magistrates Court and Eastern Magistrates Courts on the 9th of February. Health officials say they've not found any COVID-19 cases after two lockdown operations in Changshawan and Taipo concluded this morning. One of the residential buildings that was locked down overnight was Po Wa Court in Changshawan, where a family connected to the Silka Hotel case live. The other lockdown at Koi Wo House in Taiwo Estate, Taipo, involves an indeterminate test result from a 23-year-old woman who's asymptomatic. Authorities are verifying her case, but in the meantime decided to test all residents to rule out any infection risks. Around 2,550 people were tested in the two operations. 
Britain is supplying Ukraine with short-range anti-tank missiles as it faces a Russian buildup of about 100,000 troops on its border. The Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said a small team of British troops would provide training. Here's the BBC's Jonathan Beale. Dozens of British troops have been in Ukraine since 2015 to help train their armed forces. But the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace told MPs that in light of the increasingly threatening behaviour of Russia, Britain would now also be providing a new security assistance package to bolster Ukraine's defences. The UK, he said, is to give Ukraine an unspecified number of light anti-armour weapons. He said a small number of UK military personnel would also be sent to Ukraine to provide short-term training on those tactical weapons. Join me at 9 o'clock for more on these stories and much more on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with Ada Wong and me, Janice Wong. Good morning, Ada. Good morning, Janice. Today we're talking about a coming government bureau overhaul and the huge underwater volcano eruption near Tonga. Chief Executive Carrie Lam set the tables for what would be the biggest government revamp since 2007, laying out a plan for her successor to restructure existing bureaus and create two new ones. The proposals would see a new culture, sports and tourism Bureau being created. Housing and transport would be split up, and the Health Bureau would get to focus on its core business as its food portfolio is transferred to a new Environment and Ecology Bureau. So, would such changes improve governance? Will it happen at all? And can it help to solve deep seated problems such as the housing shortage? After 9.15am, we'll speak to an expert about the massive volcanic eruption near Tonga that was felt across the world and triggered a tsunami that caused two people to drown in a beach in Peru. Let us know your thoughts. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or just give us a call on 233-88266. Now to uh, kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line John Burns, an emeritus professor and honorary professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Politics and Public Administration. In a moment, we'll also be joined by Executive Council member Regina Ip, who is the chairwoman of the New People's Party. Good morning, Professor Burns. Good morning. And great to have you on Back Chat again. Um, so first of all, what do you think uh, stands out the most from the proposed revamp? Well, for me, the revamp demonstrates a kind of limited logic. And it's limited, but there is a kind of logic there. Um, it communicates the government's priorities to the central government. Ah, see, we're doing something to citizens, to civil servants. It rationalizes workloads, as you said, health now, which is overworked in the pandemic, um, you know, takes has its own portfolio. They try to build some new synergies. Environment is now um, looking looking after the observatory, and they try to improve coordination. They also the logic also seems to assume that more government is needed, more government steering is needed for youth culture, sports, and tourism, which previously did not have so much. I think we have to remember there's no one best way to organize government. We've been doing this 
I mean, the Secretariat was set up in the 1970s, and in those days it had eight policy secretaries. We've now got 15. One thing that this um, plan doesn't address is the political capacity of government to manage all of this, which requires accountability, trust, participation beyond government. Rearranging the deck chairs may improve things a little bit in some portfolios, but we still have the silos. There's no way to get around that. So, so do you think the changes will be able to um, increase the efficiency of the government? Well, it, uh, I mean, that it's possible that it will increase the efficiency of government, but um, capacity to deliver, that's what we're interested in, not just efficiency. We're actually interested in the government solving problems. And the government is very deficient in political capacity. I've said this before, and this reorganization plan does nothing to address that. That's why I said it's very limited. So, um, Professor Burns, uh, good morning. Um, what, what, good morning. Is the, what is the significance of um, uh, highlighting uh, youth, young people, in the Home Affairs Bureau? So it might become the Home and Youth Affairs Bureau in the future. I think the protests, um, you know, in 2019, we had so many young people who were arrested and who are being tried, being held to account for their behavior, unlike the government, um, and who are in prison. And um, all of this highlighted um, a disconnect, I would say, between many young people in Hong Kong and the place of Hong Kong as a um, part of China. And so recently I had a, I had a chance to look at um, the values of young people on the mainland and here. And there's a huge gap, especially for youth, young people, post-materialist values, you know, valuing things like democracy, participation, and freedom of speech. Our young people more, much more highly value these things than do, than do young people on the mainland. So I think the idea here is that more civil service, more government will somehow be able to channel youth back into the right direction. I'm dubious about this, but I think that's what they're trying to do. And they may have been told to do this. And, and some people have uh, commented that uh, although the Transport and Housing Bureau we separate into two bureaus, um, but the Housing Bureau has not been um, integrated into the Development Bureau. So, in fact, you know, the red tape has not been cut, but um, we just have a new bureau to deal with it. Did you see any changes in procedural matters in speeding up um, uh, uh, land acquisition and so on and so forth? I completely agree that, um, you know, there are many, many different ways to do this. And the government since the 1970s has been trying out all sorts of things. Remember on the mainland, they reorganize the central government every five years. So this is, this is a part of shaking things up. I mean, if I were serious, if I was the CE and serious about housing, I would create inside the CE's office, 
a high-powered small policy group of maybe four people to deal with housing, land, finance, and law, and bring these people together inside the CE's office and give them authority to coordinate and uh, solve the housing problem rather than re reorganize the deck chairs, which is what I see we're doing here. You know, there's, a, there's no one best way. Yes, of course, they could be with development. Um, they could be on their own. On their own communicates priorities, though, and so this is um, symbolic, but um, it does tell us what the government thinks is important right now. All right, uh, let's uh, now bring in Executive Council Member Regina Ebb, who is also the chairwoman of the New People's Party. Good morning, and uh, thank you for joining us on the program, Mrs. Ebb. Good morning. Good morning. Um, we were talking about uh, right. Well, right now we're talking about the uh, revamp uh, of the uh, housing and transport uh, um, bureau. It'll be a uh, split up, and uh, um, I, I'm quite interested to hear your assessment, Mrs. It, because um, you've basically witnessed uh, government restructuring over the years. When you were the uh, secretary for security, we had the housing planning and lands bureau, which later became the um, transport and housing bureau plus the development bureau, and now this latest proposal to set up a separate housing bureau. Do you think this will boost the government's efficiency in, in tackling Hong Kong's housing problems? Um, we, I welcome these proposals, which are at least 10 years late. My party uh, already put forward similar proposals in June 2011, well reported by the media. In fact, our proposals of reorganization also included a, a suggestion to split transport and housing. Well, I always think that putting transport and housing together is very odd and the portfolio is too large. You know, Of course, I agree, um, just splitting the bureau into two would not solve, alone would not solve the housing shortage problems. But if, you, if the one secretary is already too busy uh, answering to LegCo's complaints about high-speed rail or cost overrun delays, call to let's call for uh, accountability every day. How can that secretary have time to review procedures and speed up production? You know, the, the transport area is so broad, air, land, sea, you know, and all the mishaps concerning MTR. So it's really the portfolio is too big for anyone official. So it should be split. And we also recommended... Um, setting up a technology innovation bureau, which Mr. C.Y. Leung was only able to do in 2015. Uh, and there is consensus in LegCo, broad consensus, uh, that transport and housing should be split. In fact, I moved in motion to that effect at the housing panel back in 2018, and it wa was adopted by all parties. You know, so I think this is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, Mrs. Yip, what, what is the significance of adding industry uh, to the Innovation and Technology Bureau and it might become the Innovation, Technology and Industries Bureau? I also support that because um, before 2007, we had commerce industry, commerce, trade commerce industry bureau headed by then Joseph Wong, you know. Hong Kong was, when Hong Kong was one of Asia's four little dragons, we were a light manufacturing powerhouse. We were the world's number one in many manufacturing areas. 
And but somehow Donald Trump took that away, took technology away, took industry away, and then form a new commerce and economic development bureau, meaning the government would only focus on services but not industries. Now that is a, a great shame, you know. Um, you know, ignoring our deep industrial strength uh, from the old days, you know. And uh, in Mr. C. Y. Leung's uh, uh, administration, there were during that time there were already calls for reindustrialization. You know, not doing a low end, but uh, going uh, up the technology ladder. So, uh, in fact, that was has been underway reindustrialization, helping the the industrialists to uh, to move up the technology ladder. So I think it is a, a correct move to uh, reconstitute the Innovation Technology Bureau by including industrialization. Um, so um, the uh, transport, the transport bureau uh, will become the transport logistics bureau. Now I notice that uh, logistics has never been a po- in 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 any names of policy bureaus, and this would be the first time. You see any um, significance in that? Well, supply chain is very important. You know, transport is closely related to supply chain. So I think it is reasonable. Um, Hong Kong has done well in logistics. You know, well, until recently, we were the world's number one in air cargo uh, traffic. You know, uh, we are one of the world's top container ports. You know, all these activities are closely related to the logistics industry. So I think um, it is a good thing to put the three together. Put the two together. Hmm. One one thing that um, uh, not many people have noticed is the disappearance uh, of the policy innovation unit um, under the uh, chief executive. Uh, previously, we we had the central policy unit, and that is um, well definitely for policy research and and for uh, also politics. Uh, but uh, Mrs. Carrie Lam uh, didn't have that anymore, and uh, Pico, uh, the policy innovation and coordination office, was set up. Uh, what what could happen to to that? You think? I think the CPU should be reinstated. I think it's a mistake to uh, disestablish the central policy unit and use the funds to set up that pickle. You know, on the pretext that uh, I'm bringing young people to government. In fact, those young people, you know, did not last very long. They were among the first to protest against uh, Mrs. Lam's fugitive offenders bill. You know. Uh, there were reports that uh, they started setting up their own Lenin's war. Uh, they signed, uh, um, they called for the CE to step down and left. There was high turnover in people because the government was bringing in young people without common conviction, without common moral or political convictions. On the other hand, we need the CPU headed by a respectable academic to connect us with the academia, both local and international. You know, even during Mr. Leung's administration, Dr. Xu Xinbo, he did a good job in bringing in American European scholars to talk about new ideas. You know, we need that because our administration has very little, if any, research capability. The government ought to be always listening to different voices, you know. So I think um, it is a good thing to drop the pickle, and I think the next CE should re-establish the CPU. Uh, Professor Barnes, um, would you agree with that? Uh, the, the central policy unit should be reinstated. 
I agree that there's a need for uh, heightened capacity for research on this, but I think there are a lot of innovative policy solutions around in the community. We have no uh, shortage of these, and I just point in the direction of Regina's own housing policy, which looks at housing as a human right, as a social good, uh, not as a commodity. And my goodness, why don't we just push that? I mean, this would, if the government adopted this kind of thinking, this would, it wouldn't matter so much how these things were organized. This would require a fundamental radical shift in the way government approaches this topic, and that's what's needed. This is already out there. I mean, we don't need um, expensive, more research to come up with ideas like this. We know what they are. Yes, Mrs. Yip? Well, I, I, I'm glad that Professor Burns agrees with me, uh, but um, we need new ideas in other areas. For example, how do we define poverty? What is the best way to alleviate poverty? Can any government actually eradicate poverty? You know, uh, what is the best uh, engine for innovation? On innovation, the government likes to talk about how much money we have spent on innovation. But spending money does not always produce the right results, you know. But you see the trouble with Hong Kong being a small government traditionally. A small government is the government has very limited research capability. Unlike ministries in mainland China, all the major ministries uh, have their own research units, research institutes, you know. We have done. So if we can reestablish the CPU and have academics, you know, um, the government is just doing things all the time. But we also need people to take an outside look and remind us to do some thinking and not just doing what we like to do. You know, that's what a CPU can help us to do. Earlier, um, before you joined us, uh, Mrs. Ip, um, Professor Burns, he, he expressed some concern about um, the proposed revamp. I mean, um, he, he, said, he said there is a need for the revamp, but uh, he said the plan didn't address political, the political capacity of, uh, government, of the government to manage all of it. Um, do, you, do you express, I mean, do you share that concern as well? I agree, because most of our officials whether the civil servants or the, you know, politically appointed uh, officials, they are not political animals, you know. If they were really astute political animals, many of them would not have gone to that birthday party, you know. Again, the bulk of the civil service was trained to be doers, not leaders or politicians, you know. And there is a need to augment the political capacity of the government as a whole, not through the CPU uh, how could we do that? Uh, assuming that uh, this uh, revamp, this proposal will go through uh, the new LegCo, uh, we, we will have 15 secretaries and then you will have the undersecretaries, the political assistants. Uh, and there will be more officials, and I understand that uh, a lot of people, a lot of them have left the government. Do, do you think we could find, uh, um, you know, sufficient talents, political talents, to join the government these, these days? It really depends on the top leadership. You know, you are right that even if we have the right structure, we need, still need to find the right people to, to lead it. 
for example, the culture, recreation, culture, sports and tourism ministry, you know, um, could be fraught with political pitfalls. Depends on how you handle culture. You can handle culture as a as a, um, a business, you know, commercializing culture, you know. But uh, it depends on how you handle culture. You could also end up stifling Hong Kong's cultural diversity, and that could be controversial. So you must put the right people in it. And I hope the civil servants academy that the government uh, is establishing, they already find a site for it and will be hiring the first uh, head, you know, the first principal of the academy. And then I think in due course, this academy will bring in speakers, trainers from all over uh, to beef up the political acumen and capacity of the government. But it also, of course, it depends on the top leadership. But do you think the political appointees should come from the civil service mainly? Um, uh, currently, I don't think many top civil servants would want to take up political appointee positions. I don't think many will want to take up political appointees. Uh, the advantage of bringing in civil servants is they are well familiar with government procedures, structure, and uh, the people inside government. They know who are the good people, who are the bad people. You know, um, but uh, they, they they lack civil servants generally lack expertise in some areas. They lack most of them lack market experience, the financial markets, financial innovations. Uh, we are behind the curve. In that respect, civil servants tend to be more conservative and uh, risk-averse. And we don't have technologists, scientists in government. So I think we should use the political appointment system to augment, you know, the deficiency within our government. Right. So, so, so um, we all agree that there is a need for a revamp. But, but what about the timing? I mean, is now the best time to come up with the proposal? I mean, um, there's no time for the current administration to implement it. So, so why not let the new administration come up with a revamp proposal of its own after the chief executive election in March? Whether Mrs. Lab will get a second term or not, or not, this sort of a reorganization will take time. You know, after she floated it uh, last week. Um, LegCo won't deal with it until probably after Chinese do after the two sessions in March. If you look at our diary, our timetable, we won't elect our panel chairs until this month. Then we go into Chinese New Year recess. Then we focus on the budget. Then you have the two sessions in Beijing, during which time we go into recess. So we won't pick it up again seriously until the time when an next-term chief executive election will take place. So it doesn't really matter. The timing is fine. Uh, you tell the community what you want to do, and Mrs. Lam gets a second term, she will implement it. If, if somebody else uh, becomes the next chief, um, it won't be done before the, the next chief uh, comes into office. You know, There will be time for the next chief to consider whether to go ahead with it. So timing-wise, there is no problem. Right. Uh, what what uh, what did happen uh, before the announcement of uh, this uh, revamp, this new blueprint? Um, did the uh, did Mrs. Lam talk to all the uh, major political parties? Um, did you also um, provide your advice? Well, I think the government is well aware of the electrical consensus that we should split transport and housing. There have been plenty of discussions, and also 
the idea of forming a new culture, sports and tourism bureau. Actually, for my colleague Ma Fengguo, you know, the guy who, the member who represents the culture, recreation, performing arts sector, and there is sports support in LegCo. And of course, um, leaders of the political parties in LegCo, including myself, we have meetings with Mrs. Lam from time to time to exchange views. So I think she knows we support her ideas on this score. And um, uh, but but it still hasn't cut the uh, the red tapes and the procedural matters, Mrs. Zip. Uh. You said well, Mrs. Lam said, you know, for example, on development projects, every development project have uh, 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 is regulated under at least a dozen ordinances. You know, lots of procedures to go through. Uh, that's why it takes so long to produce land. And Mrs. Lam has said she will. Um, review all the procedures to streamline, um, the, to shorten the timing, and that has our full support. That is the way to go. There's no other option. You must streamline the procedures, you know, and cut the time for development. All right, uh, we'll have to take a short break for the news summary. Many thanks again to uh, Regina Ip, Executive Council Member and uh, the Chairwoman of the New People's Party. Um, Professor Burns will continue our discussion after the news uh, when we will be joined by Dr Stephen Wong, Election Committee lawmaker, who is also the Senior Vice President and Executive Director of the Public Policy Institute, our Hong Kong Foundation. And uh, just a reminder, after 9.15, we'll talk about the huge underwater volcano eruption near Tonga. And if you want to ask questions or just share your views on today's topics, give us a call. Our number is 233-88266. Now, the weather forecast, mainly cloudy with one or two rain patches in the morning. Temperatures will linger around 17 degrees. Right now, it's 16 degrees. Relative humidity, 87%. Disruption. You are listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Tuesday morning with Ada Wong and me, Janice Wong. We're talking about the proposed restructuring of government bureaus. If you want to comment or ask questions, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Back Chat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Still with us on the program is John Burns, an emeritus professor and honorary professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Politics and Public Administration. Also joining us now is Election Committee lawmaker Dr. Stephen Wong, who is also the Senior Vice President and Executive Director of the Policy, Public Policy Institute, our Hong Kong Foundation. Good morning, Dr. Wong. Hi, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so first of all, what do you think of the overall uh, revamp proposal? Well, I think the revamp proposal, uh, proposal uh, a part of it um, makes sense. Uh, for example, the setting up of the uh, cultural bureau in the sense of uh, consolidating some of the um, um, commercial and non-commercial uh, arts uh, into one bureau, uh, so that it is more aligned, more alignment and consistent. But for some other bureaus, I have a, a bit of doubt. For example, uh, uh, you know, separating the uh, uh, the housing bureau out. Um, the question I have there is: um, so why would that make uh, faster production of public housing? Uh, it doesn't necessarily. Uh, the case. Um, um, in order to answer the question, I think we need to look at 
why um, you know there are a slow production of public housing? Is it because of uh, slow um, you know uh, development of land, which is obviously part part of the truth? But if you look at the next five years' immediate production of housing, we also have to look at some of the coordination problems uh, among bureaus. For example, you know that the land is almost ready, but is waiting for other uh, departments, such as civil engineering development department, or you know environmental protection department, or um, you know there are cases, uh, many cases that I have looked at site by site, and then you would understand why there are specific problems uh, related to the slow production of public housing. But having this reorganization does not necessarily solve those uh, issues I mentioned. So in order to actually understand and pinpoint and, and, and we lock and, and we solve some of these um, uh, impediments, we actually have to look at site-by-site data, which is uh, unavailable uh, for the, um, you know, we only have side-by-side data for public housing production for the first four years. We don't have those data after four years. Um, but, but, you know, the, 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 the sort of five to ten years uh, side-by-side public housing data is actually crucial for us to understand and unlock um, and speed up uh, the, the public housing production. So in, in a word, in summary, I think the reorganization only works if, if after reorganization, uh, we, we, we actually resolve, uh, we have a blueprint so that we can actually see things are being done differently among different uh, bureaus. That, that's number one. Number two, um, after reorganization, uh, the question is whether that would facilitate a, uh, whether that would facilitate and, and solve some of the collect, collective, out, uh, collective action problems as well as sort of collaborative uh, governance problems within the government. I think those are the sort of the two key questions um, to evaluate uh, sort of the reorganization. I, I think um, without those, uh, the reorganization is just a sort of reshuffling of paper instead of actually driving at solutions. Um, Stephen, good morning. Um, what you mentioned is actually not at the bureau level, but um, at the interdepartmental level. Um, there is a lot of coordination work to do. There are many government departments, and um, you know there are red tapes. Uh, there are many procedures, public consultations, and um, uh, environmental impact studies. Uh, how how could we streamline all of that, and who should be in charge? That's a good question. Um, I understand that there are a cutting red tape exercise um, driven by the Development Bureau, uh, sort of on the sort of production of land. But I haven't seen the same sort of um, uh, cutting red tapes exercise uh, being discussed at, at the sort of the uh, housing uh, bureau or the, the housing bureau level. So I think, um, so that's number one, is to sort of self-evaluate uh, amount the bureau um, to, to cut the red tapes, for example, you know, the repeating of consultations, uh, you know, the, the planning, the, the land, uh, and sort of the building process. But I think uh, the self-evaluation within the government is actually very important to, to so first cut the, red, uh, the bureaucratic, bureaucratic red tapes, the repeated uh, sort of procedures. Number two is the, sort of the coordination problems that sort of is a, uh, a wicked problem uh, that, that all sort of administrations face. Um, I think that... Um, uh, that, that is, uh, in order, I, I think one way to resolve that is to actually be serious about the target. So as long as you don't have the target, then you don't know where you're going to. But for, how, for public housing production, they actually have a clear target. Uh, and every year, in the past eight years, they failed that target. Um, you know, by, by, by my account, 
uh, in the past eight years, they actually the production was short of a hundred thousand public housing units. That's about so thirteen, um, you know, Choi Hong uh, estates. Uh, so, so short of they they, they actually built less a hundred thousand less units than they they planned for. So they have a clear clear KPI. But they fail to meet the KPI, and no one is responsible. And the reason is because everybody is following the procedure. So I think that you know, one one is that people. A lot of people talk about KPI, but in public housing production, they actually have a KPI. It's just a matter of actually be serious about this KPI. And if you know, and 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 and, and if. Some, if we fail to meet the ta- target, whether it's because of other bureaus' coordinative coordination problem, someone need to take charge. I think that's uh, in order to solve to, to answer your question, Ada. This is um, in order to, to actually have a momentum to drive a collaboration. One, we have a target. Second, we have to have someone that is responsible if we fail to deliver a target on the overall level, number one, and also I think on a sort of side by side. Um, level, meaning that if you have, if, 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 if a project manager is responsible for a particular site within sort of the, pub, the next sort of 10 years of public housing production, then each site needs to have a manager that is responsible for that developmental, developmental pipeline in order to drive at that sort of collaborative, to, to, to solve that collective action problems. Otherwise, I think people will be, the paper will be just shoved shuffled around um, departments without actually having real results. So, so Professor Burns, what do you think? Uh, Dr. Wong here, he's saying uh, the new housing bureau won't help uh, produce more public housing or, or shorten the waiting time. Brilliant. Make him secretary for housing. I'm, I think this is, uh, I like what he has to say. I think he's uh, analytically put his finger on many of the problems. I completely agree that reshoveling the deck chairs is not going to um, result in achieving the targets. I think it's an incentive system problem. So what is the incentive for the actors to solve these problems? Our public finance system is one that's based on high land prices and limited housing availability. Doesn't that need to change? I mean, uh, so the, the... this is a huge problem that goes way beyond housing, but housing is at the focal point now for many reasons. Uh, so I like what he has to say. So Secretary Wong, step up. Um, no, I, can't, I, I obviously have to uh, clarify that, and, and, and <laughs> that, that, that you know, as a legal uh, member, I think um, obviously um, we, we can uh, pinpoint to some of these uh, big, bigger picture problem and ask for uh, uh, solutions and suggest solution as well. But I think, uh, frankly, um, as a executive branch issue in a way that, um, um, you know, they, they need to sort of self-improve uh, by themselves and, and really have a real target and, and momentum. Uh, otherwise, I think outside uh, voices sometimes will, 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 will make them even less uh, eager to change because they, they thought if they change, they, 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 they sort of uh, listen. So, so I think we need to have a way, uh, as Professor Burns said, uh, have some structural incentives changes so that people are eager to actually self-improve um, and, 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 and do it that way. But, 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 but second, if I can offer my, my thought on this, is that, um, and hopefully, as a legislative 
uh, branch, even though we are uh, supposed to legislate. But 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 maybe uh, we can if, if the sec- if the housing sec- uh, bureau have have coordination and collective action problems with other departments, can they use us to sort of um, help them to to you know if if, if you are saying this site have issue and stall because of let's say uh, they are waiting for CEDD or you know the the engineering department, then then tell us then then we will follow up for them in a way you know this is obviously supposed to be an executive branch collaborative issue but 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 I'm happy to be used and and hopefully be part of a solution to unlock some of these um, collaborative uh, problems that 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 really exist everywhere in, in all administrations in the world. But, 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 but I think um, let's try to figure out the solution together. Um, Stephen, another issue is the research capacity of um, government officials and, and, well, civil servants. Uh, you know, the first half of our program is, as you also mentioned, that uh, perhaps um, this needs to be raised and enhanced. Uh, on, on the other hand, I, I have seen that in the past few years, uh, our Hong Kong Foundation has been doing that for the government. Um, do, do, do you think, uh, well, well, definitely the, uh, our Hong Kong Foundation will continue, uh, but, um, you know, what about the research capacity of the government itself? Yeah, it's interesting, um, because, because I think um, sort of the long-term planning and strategic uh, uh, policy research um, is, is something that is, it, it, it cannot be achieved by a entity. If you look at, for example, right, um, in the U.S. or in mainland uh, or in Korea and Singapore, um, they, they actually, the, the way it works is that obviously they have a very flo- uh, vibrant uh, social think tank ecosystem that, that obviously consolidate a lot of professional and expert advice and analysis and, and work with, obviously academic have their own sort of think tanks and so we, we all work together those are important but they cannot replace frankly uh, the internal um, sort of planning strategic planning and long-term planning function uh, one within the government that is usually have a strategic level central uh, the, the planning uh, in 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 in, China, in in mainland is the obviously the Fagaiwei is the uh, sort of development uh, ministry. But even they have the development ministry in mainland. Each of the ministry, for example, um, science and tech ministry, they 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 have their own sort of planning unit and 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 policy research unit that sort of work with the sort of the central uh, research unit, um, and then they work with uh, the social think tanks at different level at the sort of the uh, country level, at the province level, at the city level, and and in Hong Kong, I think yes, uh, we we are missing. Obviously, the sort of the central uh, uh, strategic and long-term planning function in each of the bureaus, they have some, and they sometimes work with you know sort of the outside think tanks on, on a sort of a limited capacity. But I think sort of the whole thing, uh, not just one particular element, needs to be elevated uh, so that we really sort of sort of gather sort of the the, the, the best. Uh, uh, opinions and analysis on, on a meritocracy, meritocracy basis. I think sometimes uh, uh, sort of the, 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 the people inside the government, they think that um, their job is to uh, be sort of a, a policy analyst without research backups. You know, I think that is uh, 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 sort of, uh, uh, they, they, they're doing too, too much in a way. You know, they, they need to rely on a bit more outside analysis and their job is to look at the results analyze the results and then consider 
the political feasibility and then sort of make decision that way. So their job is to make decision and, and evaluate political consequences and, and, and let other people do the analysis for them. Um, because that's sort of the, the, the sort of right way of division of labor. No one can know everything by themselves without you know, having a deep dive research. Um, Professor Burns, your views? No, uh, yes, yes, uh, of course I agree. I think the government has relied to a large extent on consultants and consultant mm. themes for when it thinks it do- when it thinks it doesn't know or it needs enough, it needs more. It hires consultants, and consultancies also have problems because they are limited by their terms and their for-profit organizations yeah. that that are you know driven by the government to yeah. justify in many cases pre-established uh, uh, positions so it's not genuinely um, a free market uh, of ideas is what I'm talking about so all of this is good, and of course I agree with it, and I go back to what I said earlier, that is to say what's missing here is lack of political capacity. How do you build this? You know, nothing here about that. The need for accountability, improve the trust situation with the people, need for participation beyond government, all of these things. And I'm sorry to say this government appears to have no idea about these things. All right, so Professor Burns, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's John Burns, an emeritus professor and honorary professor at the University of Hong Kong's Department of Politics and Public Administration. Also many thanks to Dr. Stephen Wong, an election committee lawmaker, who is also the senior vice president and executive director of the Public Policy Institute, our Hong Kong Foundation. It's now 18 minutes past nine, and it's time to turn to our final topic today. And that's the massive volcanic eruption near Tonga that was felt across the world and triggered a tsunami that caused two people to drown in a beach in Peru. To tell us more, we're joined on the line now by Professor Shane Cronin, a volcanologist from the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Welcome to Black Chan, Professor Cronin. Good evening. Nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you too. Um, Some experts have said that uh, Saturday's eruption was uh, likely the biggest recorded anywhere on the planet in more than 30 years. Um, Do you share their view? Uh, It certainly was in terms of the explosive power. So that is, you know, how much energy was released uh, during that eruption. But it wasn't in terms of the overall volume because it was a relatively short eruption. It lasted only uh, less than 10 minutes. So, But the explosive power, absolutely right up there, is one of the biggest eruptions in the last 30 years. So, so what do we know about this uh, volcanic eruption so far? So um, a lot of the communications uh, on the ground have been um, affected by the loss of a submarine cable. Um, so, and that's been hard to get local information from but we know from the satellite uh, imagery so far and uh, some of the overflight information is that um, the change to this volcano has been huge so the volcano is a a, think of it as a large mountain but a submarine mountain um, and it's about 1800 meters high and about 20 kilometers across and the top of it, um, parts of it stick out of the uh, top of the ocean, but 
most of the top of it is about um, between 150 and uh, 250 metres below sea level. And the eruption was so huge that it disrupted a lot of the top of the volcano and we're not sure if that's collapsed downwards or whether that's been a landslide-type collapse or just been blasted off. But essentially, the eruption was so huge it totally changed the shape of that uh, of that volcano. And uh, yeah, and as uh, you've seen, um, it produced these very widespread tsunami and very widespread air pressure waves. So, so the amount of damage caused from the eruption is still not entirely clear right now. Um, do we have to wait until the ash clouds they they clear up before we get a, a better picture? There has been some uh, new images come through. Uh, and so the ash fall on Tonga itself has not been as severe as we were fearing. So two centimetres of ash had fallen on Tonga Tapu, the main inhabited island, and um, or probably similar amounts on the central island group, the Ha'apai group. And so <clears throat> currently the ash impacts have not, not been too bad because most of the ash has fallen into the ocean. Um, so there's uh, the volcano... 65 kilometres from the main inhabited islands and it was uh, the ash bloom was blown away to the northwest, and that meant that a lot of the ash actually fell out onto open ocean. So that's been lucky. The big damage, um, however, around Tonga has been an association with tsunami uh, from the eruption and so there's been quite a lot of wave damage in low-lying areas of many of the islands. Is it rare for an undersea volcano to trigger tsunami waves like that? I mean, across the globe? Yes, yes, it is actually. So, um, you know, undersea volcanoes may produce tsunami, um, but normally um, the biggest ones are produced when there's a submarine landslide. And these are usually also much smaller than big tectonic earthquakes. So, when a tectonic earthquake occurs and there's a major shift in a large area of the sea floor then there's lots and lots of energy that is uh, goes into producing a tsunami but volcanoes um and particularly this one is a relatively small point source so the top of the volcano is only about five kilometers in diameter so it's quite unusual that a small point source should create a large tsunami and part of the reason i think the re- uh, reason for the tsunami being so large is that the explosion uh, when it occurred, it burst through this 250 metres of seawater and uh, it, uh, also the magma, as it was expanding, uh, was incorporating seawater and turning that into steam. And when it does that, it expands the seawater by something like 70 times, so it's just blasting it apart. And so blasts the magma apart and blasts the seawater out of the way and so, um, so there's a, a huge uh, impact uh, in terms of creating a wave. So it's a kind of a special circumstance where the explosion was very violent and also at about the right depth of water to create a really good uh, transfer of energy to the water to make the, to make the tsunami waves. And um, as you reported, they've been um, travelling, uh, they travelled around the entire Pacific, which is quite unusual for a volcanic eruption. <coughs> How many um, undersea volcanoes are there? Do, 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 we, do we know? Yeah. Yeah, there are more undersea volcanoes than there are ones on land. 
um, and many of them we know very little about because um, you know they're so far below below the ocean surface, and we, we we've actually mapped uh, in great detail only very small amounts of the ocean floor. So we know that along the chain of volcanoes between New Zealand and Samoa, for example, there are there are large volcanoes located uh, only around about 100 kilometres apart along that chain. Uh, so there are there are hundreds of them along that chain, and then if you tra- track that around the entire Pacific Ring of Fire, there are thousands uh, of undersea volcanoes um, alongside the uh, the ones that are associated with um, land. Right, and. Um and uh, has um, you know scientists uh, predicted the, this sort of eruption um, uh, before? I mean, would would you have known that this is coming, and warnings have been alerted? Yes, um, uh, in some ways. Uh, so um, this eruption sequence began on the thirtieth. Oh, well, began in sort of middle of December with some small scale uh, eruptions on the island. Oh, and then on the 30th of December, there was a bigger eruption, and that made an ash plume that was 17 kilometres high. And uh, and then on the 13th of January, there was another uh, eruption that produced uh, a column that was 17 kilometres high. So those were kind of like the early warning or the early early stages of, of the eruption sequence. Um, and then the... You know, so we the, we knew something was going on, and the Tongan Geological Survey had issued warnings about uh, eruption activity, and also uh, about um, uh, and and also about the uh, risk of tsunami, and uh, and but the violence and the absolute explosive power of that 15th of January event was was far greater than than we were expecting. So do we know if the um, eruption on Saturday is the climax of the eruptions? I mean, since you just mentioned there were earlier eruptions, right? Well, we would hope so. Um, I expect that it would be um, the climax in terms of explosive power. But if um, the magma that's been evacuated through that eruption, if it is being replaced now by new magma rising to that volcano, to, you know, there, there could be ongoing, ongoing eruption activity. I wouldn't expect it to be as um, violently explosive because that was a special circumstance uh, where there was a lot of magma trapped and a lot of potentially a lot of magmatic gas trapped in there as well. So there was a combination of, uh, of a a high potential for explosivity with a high pressure of magma and magma gas coupled with the seawater. So if there are further eruptions, um, our expectation would be that the um, magma may not contain so much gas. Uh, It may also not get trapped because it has a freer path to the surface after the explosion. And so therefore the activity may be less explosive. So it could well be there are more eruptions and, and more ash generated, um, but I wouldn't expect to see the same highly explosive um, uh, events that we that we saw um, just a few days ago. So, as you said, there are many underwater volcanoes, and I guess there must be a lot of them uh, in the Pacific Ocean. Um, how how do things look? Did do we expect um, other eruptions, or what what um, what is the science saying? 
Yeah, so at the moment, you know, one one volcano, um, they, they normally operate independently in terms of the way in which they erupt. So usually, you know, the, the large eruption of one volcano does not affect other ones. So um, um, at the moment, um, there are other volcanoes that, that have had small-scale activity, but um, in, in this part of the Pacific, we, we don't have our watch on any other ones just at the moment. And just uh, finally, I mean, with the Saturday's uh, eruption, I mean, is there any uh, potential climate impact? Yeah, that's a good question. And um, a lot of these, um, a lot of people are still trying to figure that out. But um, uh, the main conclusion that I've seen so far from talking to colleagues is that the height of the eruption plume is not is not high enough for the sulphur and the, and, the, and the eruption plume to stay in the atmosphere for very long. And so essentially the climate impact is caused when there are little droplets of water with sulphur gas uh, dissolved within them that are floating high above the clouds and then they reflect sunlight back into space. But if the, if the aerosols or the little droplets of water and the sulphur gas um, are not high enough, then they will be rained out of the of the atmosphere, and and that can happen quite quickly. So it, it just really depends on how high in the atmosphere the um, the, the gas uh, the gas is. And so I was just looking at some data just before the call, showing that um, that a lot of it, uh, a lot of the plume um, gases were around 25 kilometres up into the atmosphere. So um, it, it's um, it's a matter of time to see how high they stay and uh, and whether they whether they get washed out by the um, by the rains currently a lot of the plume has kind of moved across the northwest and the edge of the plume is now passing to the north of Australia uh, and in the coral sea region so we're safe for now Yep. <laughs> All right, uh, Professor Cronin, we'll have to leave it here, there for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Professor Shane Cronin, a volcanologist from the University of Auckland in New Zealand. Also, many thanks to uh, um, you for listening. And uh, thank you to Ada, of course, and Yuki, our producer. Now, here's the weather. Uh, mainly cloudy with one or two rain patches in the morning. Temperatures will linger around 17 degrees during the day. Wind moderate northeasterlies and the outlook cool tomorrow morning. Morning, windy on Thursday and Friday. At the moment, it's uh, 17 degrees and the relative humidity 85%. As the risk of severe disease and death from COVID-19 increases with age, vaccines are highly recommended for the elderly. Common side effects are usually mild and temporary. Experts advise that those who have had flu shots before can safely receive COVID-19 vaccines. Even if you have a disease, you should get vaccinated as long as your condition is stable. Just staying home doesn't mean you're free from the risk of infection. Protect yourself. Get vaccinated early. It's 9.31, the news with Andrew Shirovsky. Police have charged two former Cathay Pacific flight attendants for allegedly violating Hong Kong's COVID-19 rules. The pair have been released on bail. Their cases will be heard at Tunmun and Eastern Magistrates' Courts on February 9th. Health officials say they found no new COVID cases in two lockdown operations overnight. Officials sealed off Polwak Court in Changshawan following a case linked to the Silka Seaview Hotel. Koiwo House in Taiwo Estate in Taipo was also sealed off following an indeterminate test result.
from a 23-year-old woman. And Britain is supplying Ukraine with short-range anti-tank missiles as it faces a Russian buildup of about 100,000 troops on its border. The Defense Secretary said a small team of British troops would provide training. Those are the news headlines. I'll have more on those and other stories at 10 o'clock. It's time right now on Radio 3 to say good morning to Phil Whelan and his guests on The Morning Brew. Hello. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Tuesday here on The Morning Brew. Well, Jared Watts back today at 10.40 with this week's Aussiness. Mm, wonder what that's going to be concerning. As always, he's going to be supplying the tunes too. After 11.30, our new time, Dr. Merrin Pierce will be with us live from New Zealand. He's going to be discussing climate change impacts on biodiversity and implications for Hong Kong species critters. He's going to be joined by... Tim Bonebrake, who's the Associate Professor of Biological Sciences at Hong Kong University. Join Merrin and Tim on Facebook Live. 12.10, business futurist Morris Misalowski is with us live from Melbourne, Australia. He wants to talk about the global sort of post-COVID-ish, I suppose, future of transport based on what he saw at the recent consumer electronics show in Vegas. Some pretty groovy cars and, and wheels there. Transport writer James Ockenden is going to join us for the Hong Kong bits. Morris's Global Predictions. 